We are continuing in our series this morning in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has been preaching this sermon to his disciples, and he's giving them a vision of what God says is the good life. We're almost in the middle of Jesus' sermon. We're in the middle of six statements that Jesus makes where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. We're going to be looking at the second, third, and fourth. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you statements. Now, Jesus' vision of the good life, it was an assault upon the Pharisees and the scribes' vision of the good life. The religious of Jesus' day, they were greatly offended by Jesus' words. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're guilty of what Jesus says early in his sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. They are guilty of relaxing the law of God. Even though the scribes and the Pharisees were known for being strict adherers to the law of God, they are relaxing the law. They're continually trying to weasel their way out of what God calls his followers towards. The scribes and the Pharisees are all about a cosmetic, external, put-together life. And Jesus is after a deeper righteousness, a heart righteousness that then expresses itself outwardly. If you've been with us in this series, hopefully and prayerfully you felt some conviction around the truth that we too often relax the law of God, seeking to weasel our way out of what God calls us towards. More often than not, we are driven, compelled by our own vision of the good life, not the grand vision of God's kingdom that Jesus and the scriptures give us. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we give Attention to God's Word and Jesus' sermon. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 37. This is God's Word to us. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the, great, the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you, not, you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you that you're with us this morning. And I do pray that you would take uh, this passage that is weighty and full and you would use it this morning to transform us, that we would hear from you, that Holy Spirit, you would take the word of God and press it upon our spirits that we might be changed because you've spoken to us, you've been with us. I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. 
Speak to us, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, one of my favorite people at our local CrossFit gym where I work out is a guy who dances all the time. I mean, literally dances in the middle of the class. He dances at parties. He actually leads everybody onto the dance floor when CrossFit throws a party. He loves it. And he makes other people laugh and loosen up. He makes me laugh and loosen up as he dances. And uh, he was trying for a long time to get Rachel and I to attend this dance class. And the way he described the class was a free-for-all dance party for one hour. Everybody's free to be themselves, that everybody can dance and move how they want to. And as he talked about the class, he kind of used spiritual language. He said everybody's free to be themselves, and everybody can connect with their inner spirit by dancing in freedom. Individual freedom is the current prized value in North America. Personal infinite freedom is the vision of the good life in our culture. We want our options and the freedom to choose. We can go to the grocery store, and there are shelves and shelves of cereal boxes. We can choose out of 200 cereals which one we want to take home. I woke up on Thursday morning, and I wanted a latte before I came into the church office. And I had options. Did I want to go to Joe Van Gogh or Coco Cinnamon or quickly drive through Starbucks? I went to Joe Van Gogh, and it was good. Right? Many of us are making decisions about education for our children, and we have options. Do we want to send them to public or private or charter or homeschool or year-round? And there can be a resistance for many of us to commit to something because we want to keep our options open. There's this presence of an underlying fear something else better might come along. We are a culture and a people who prize individual freedom. And I believe when it becomes too heightened or ultimate, that it actually can wreak havoc on our personal flourishing, the very thing that we're seeking by highly prizing individual freedom. Jackson Pollock became a sensation in the art world in the 1950s. Many of you know his name. Instead of taking a paintbrush like people had done for centuries, Pollock took sticks dripping with paint and almost dancing with them, whirling them through the air and then splashing the paint onto the canvas, creating colorful pattern texture. Jackson Pollock was very contemporary and modern. He was cutting edge for his time. But the thing that allowed Pollock's art to become known and hung in art galleries across the country was the canvas. The traditional canvas gave boundaries and limitations to Pollock's free expression and artistry. Without the canvas, there would have been no art or at least art for us to have seen. Pollock's expressions would have just been mopped up off the floor. Now, I use Pollock to say that I think we live in a culture that champions free dancing, free expression, freedom in every regard, but has lost the reality that we need a canvas. We actually need limitations, that limits and restrictions actually allow us to flourish and live the really good life. And without limits, our over-desire, our idolatry for individual freedom wreaks havoc in other areas of our lives that can lead to flourishing, particularly havoc upon our relationships. So 
So I want to use the passage that I just read to show this. Now, I have to say this. As I read it, you probably felt it. How is he going to fit one sermon into what could be three sermons? Right? There, there's a lot going on in the ten verses that I read. There's no way that I'm going to be able to address each topic as thoroughly as I could. But I'm going to show, hopefully, how it all holds together. I want to start by looking at the very end of our passage, and then I'm going to go back to the beginning. So we're going to start at verses 33 to 37. Look with me again at the text. Jesus says, again, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you, not, you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. And the Pharisees, they were trying to get out of being faithful to their promises and commitments to God and to one another. So the Pharisees' teaching in summary could be this. If we make promises, but we don't swear to the Lord, we have the freedom to get, about, to get out of them. And Jesus says, no, 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 I say to you, do not take an oath at all, because heaven is God's throne, earth is his footstool, Jerusalem is his city, everything is God's. He owns it all and is everywhere. And do not take an oath by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. God is in control, not you. Jesus is getting at this, that if you make a statement or a promise, you are always in the courtroom of God. You're always making an oath, and that every deception we partake in is perjury in the court of heaven. We are to live truthful lives to God and to one another. We are to let our yes be yes and our no be no. When we make promises or commitments, we are to be truth-tellers and faithful to what we've said. We are not free to weasel out of our commitments for holding true and being faithful and letting our yes be yes and no be no is the limitation that God has placed on us for personal flourishing. What happens is that when we start to heighten the desire for individual freedom and our own autonomy, our commitments to one another and our commitment to the Lord is threatened and it wreaks havoc on our flourishing. So I want to take verses 27 to 32 to show us the limit of truthfulness, the limit of faithfulness actually fosters flourishing and how an overly prized personal freedom brings destruction. My first point that I want to make is that limits foster intimacy. Limits foster intimacy. Look at verses 27 to 30. Jesus says, You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Again, the, the Pharisees are attempting to relax the law of God, particularly here in the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses. And they were limiting the breaking of this command to solely having sex with someone other than your spouse. And Jesus says, well, I say to you, everyone who looks with lust commits adultery. Jesus' point is that if we have an eye problem, we have a heart problem. That what we look at will impact our heart. If we look at pornography, it will impact our heart. If we scroll through Facebook or Instagram and allow our eyes to linger with lustful intent, it will impact our hearts. 
I'm not going to tell you this morning uh, a list of things that you can and can't look at, which movies you can watch and movies you can or TV shows you can watch or you can't because if you recognize in verses 29 to 30, it's a running conditional statement. Jesus says, if, 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 meaning everybody in here has a different threshold for what they can see and what they can watch without it leading to lust. Now hear me, we must be attentive and alert to how what we see and how what we watch on TV, on the internet, in magazines, or people that we might objectify in our day-to-day interaction can lead our hearts to lust and thus commit adultery, can lead us to be unfaithful to our commitment to God and unfaithful to our commitment to our spouse if we're married. Job in the Old Testament, Job 31.1 says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. Job understood that what passes through the eyes leads to the heart. That as Christians, we are limited in what we can look at. That if anything you look at causes your heart to lust, turn away. And we have to understand that this limitation is actually for our good and for our flourishing. It's not a detriment because our culture tells us that personal freedom and sexuality and sensuality is the greatest good. Uh, I don't know how many of you are fans of The Bachelorette or The Bachelor. Uh, I watched a few episodes this season of The Bachelorette, and I only got into it because I heard Hannah was from Alabama and Hannah was a Christian, and there were other Christian guys on the, sh- the season this year, so I kind of wanted to tune in and see how all that played out, and it got portrayed. And if you watched it, it got heated. It got heated because one contestant, Luke P., a Christian, and Hannah got into it over sex. Now, I have to say that Luke P., in my opinion, came across as a self-righteous, prideful Christian in many ways. But Luke and Hannah... And they went crossways when he pressed her on having sex on the overnight dates with the other, other guys. And Luke said that they had discussed early on in the season that they both agreed that sex should be safer within marriage. And when she kind of blew that paradigm, uh, Luke didn't respond well, in my opinion. Again, prideful, but man, if you watched it in the Men Tell All episode, he got hammered by all the other guys. All the other men visibly angry that Luke would try to place limits on Hannah's sexuality. And according to them, Luke P. was a monster who was oppressive because of his views of sex within marriage. Again, he was arrogant, self-righteous, wasn't a Luke fan, but it was clear. The culture we live in heightens personal freedom with sexuality. And how dare anyone limit that freedom? Verses 27 to 30 is clearly telling us to limit what we look at with our eyes and even more so what we engage in with our bodies. Looking with our eyes and engaging with our bodies lustfully leads to arousal. And arousal is like an escalator. You get on an escalator for the purpose of it taking you to the top. Why get on if you don't want to go to the top? Arousal is designed to take you one direction, sex. So if you're engaging in activity with the intent of being aroused, but don't intend to have sex, what are you trying to do? 
You're trying to get halfway up the escalator and then run back down. Limiting what our eyes and especially our bodies engages in protects our actual relationships and the intimacy we enjoy in them. Sex and sexuality, it's powerful, it's beautiful, it's God-given. The Bible, if we were to read it, it's quite provocative in how it talks about sex. God is very much pro-sex. But because of the power of sex and the intent of sex to be relational intimacy, God gives limits for the sake of our flourishing. And the limit God gives is that sex is to be deeply enjoyed within the covenant commitment of marriage. We are to let our yes be yes and our no be no in our sexuality. And our commitment with God and our commitment with others, whether we're married, dating, or single. Peter Jansen wrote this, that sex is like super glue. It's a little irrational and stupid, no mind of its own. Very effective if it's used properly. It unites and bonds with extraordinary speed, with real and deep bonding. With superglue, you must work carefully with what you want to stick together. Because if torn apart, it's very ugly. So make sure you know what you're trying to glue together. Sex is like superglue. It seals two people together, but when torn apart, it can hurt cause damage and many of you know this to be true from your own experiences and no matter how casual of a hookup you thought you had no matter how casually you looked at something on a screen when you think about that person or you see that person something happens inside of you when God sets limits on our sexuality he's doing so for our good God uses intimacy language in Genesis chapter 2 when God created in the beginning that man shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. Two becoming one. Intimacy, the way God designed. Sexuality and the boundaries God gives fosters intimacy. Two become one. But the more we give ourselves away and the more we tear ourselves apart, be it through our eyes that leads to the heart or through our bodies that then lead to the heart, the more calloused we become and the more it hinders our intimacy. Here's the second point I want to make this morning. It's that limits not only fosters intimacy, but it fosters permanence. Look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now before I make some comments on these verses, I, I want to say this, that I know uh, that divorce is a painful reality for some of you here. And I know that the majority of us have been affected by divorce in some way. Parents divorced, friends divorced, your own divorce. I just want to tell you that God's love and grace can and does redeem the deepest pains and hurts in our lives. He's with us even in the deepest pain and hurt. And before I get into the passage of uh, verses 31 to 32, I've got to say something else. Is that divorce is actually something God gave to us as protection. And it is sometimes the only step to take for the protection of personal flourishing. In the Bible, there are two reasons that God gives us to divorce. Sexual unfaithfulness by a spouse or abandonment or neglect by a spouse. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7. 
So hear me. God gives these as reasons to divorce because no one, no one is to be in a marriage that is abusive and harmful. So look with me now at verses 31 to 32. 31 to 32, this is what's happening. Again, the Pharisees are relaxing the law. They're taking the Old Testament teaching of Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy 24, and they're saying God gave these commands to Moses and that Moses commands you give a certificate of divorce in the case of sexual unfaithfulness. But Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now, you may not have caught it as I read it, but the Pharisees are preoccupied with the grounds of divorce. They're preoccupied with wanting to know what permission they have, what freedom they have to get out of their covenant of marriage. And while they're preoccupied with the grounds of divorce, Jesus is concerned about the institution of marriage more than the grounds of divorce. The Pharisees want to get out of their yes to marriage when it doesn't make them happy or it's not going according to their plan. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Remain in the ups and the downs and when marriage doesn't go as expected. And do we not have a culture that says marriage is a good thing, but you can get out of it when it's not working like you desire. I mean, just this past week, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Joshua Harris, but it came out this past week. Joshua Harris, a former pastor in Maryland, the author of a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye that spread like wildfire when I was in college, a, a book that was about dating and had some helpful things, but also some harmful things that he actually later came back and regretted writing. But Harris was promoted as a young 22-year-old kind of the golden child of what many call the young, restless, and reformed movement. And just this past week, Joshua Harris came out on social media saying that he and his wife are divorcing and that he is no longer a Christian. He no longer professes faith in Jesus. I thought it was extremely sad news this week. And he shared on Twitter, quote, why he shared on Twitter, I have no idea, but he shared it on Twitter. We are on this journey together to be friends and still raise our children together. We're on a journey. As if their decision to get divorced was just one of many turns in the road, one of many choices they make in their quest for freedom. A few years ago, actress Gwyneth Paltrow and husband Chris Martin announced they, they weren't getting a divorce but an unconscious coupling, a separation that would hopefully help their kids, a five-step process that would cause the least damage to their children. And Chris Martin told Rolling Stones this, that things move through. We had a season, and now we're in another season. Martin talked about marriage as if it's a vehicle to be used for personal gain, and when there's too many miles placed on it, it's worn out, it's time to have a change. Marriage is minimalized in our culture, and the divorce rate is as high inside as it is outside the church. According to the Bible, Marriage is one of the things that God gave us in the beginning for the flourishing of humanity and the world. Marriage is created and ordained by God to be exclusive and permanent, a covenant made before God in which a vow is made one to another to commit in better or worse in sickness and in health till death do us part. Genesis chapter 2 again says, Man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. That is language of faithfulness. 
of binding yourself to another person through a public vow, glued together in a covenant commitment by a permanent promise. See, when two people stand together on their wedding day and they say vows to one another, they don't say, I feel this way right now. They say, I promise that I will do in sickness and in health. I promise whatever happens in the future to be committed to you. Hear me, if, if you bank your current marriage or a future marriage on how you feel, it will fail, I promise you. Because in your marriage, you'll wake up one day and you'll ask the question, why did I marry this person? What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Who is this person? And you'll wake up many days not feeling like loving at all. And so we limit ourselves in our personal freedom to leave when there's ups and downs or when marriage is not as expected, and we remain committed. And as a result, limiting ourselves to the freedom of divorce, it creates permanence. And permanence is what allows relationships to flourish. Permanence is a loving through every season. It's commitment through the highs and the lows. Permanence is what allows another to know someone fully and be fully known by them. To know and to be fully known, and that's ultimate flourishing. That's what God created us for. Now, another thing that's really clear from our passage is that Jesus takes lust and divorce seriously. If, if we're lusting, cut off the hand. <laughs> Pluck out the eye. Now, that is not literal mutilation of the body. But what Jesus is really driving at is that it's serious. And we are to be intentional to stop that which leads to lust. And he says, if, if you divorce for wrong reasons, you're committing adultery. He takes it seriously because Jesus knows that these limits that God has given are for our good. God is for our good. He's for us. God's not some tyrannical ruler trying to oppress and restrict our freedom because he wants us to be miserable. God's for us. That's the gospel. God for us. And though we often mistrust God and believe our vision of the good life is the better life, we want our own personal freedom, and it can lead all of us to be unfaithful to God, to leave the limits He's given us, and our yes becomes no, and our no becomes yes. We become adulterers. There's nobody here this morning. I can say this with 100% confidence. Nobody here this morning that's unaffected by sex and sexuality outside the limits that God gives. What we look at, have looked at, are engaging in, have engaged in, will engage in, our culture is hypersexualized and we are hypersexualized. And most of us are affected by divorce. Divorce you've gone through. A divorce you're thinking about having. The divorce of parents, the divorce of friends or other family members. We are not a people who let our yes be yes and no be no. Faithfulness is not always true of us. But faithfulness and commitment is true of God. That Jesus on the cross took our unfaithfulness upon himself, took the punishment we deserve, Jesus the true one, who always let his yes be yes and no be no, took our sin upon himself and bore its consequences that Jesus entered the courtroom of God 
and committed perjury before his father, the perfect sinless son of God, said he was guilty for the sins of the whole world. Jesus committed perjury in order to forgive, redeem, and love us. He gave up his freedom and laid his life down and sacrificed so that he could be in intimate relationship with each one of us, so that he could be the lover of our soul in a way that not even a spouse can. Jesus remains faithfully committed to us, never leaves nor forsakes his people. No matter what we've done, are doing, or will do, in better or worse, in sickness and in health, Jesus is permanently present with us. See, Jesus and Christianity, they're not oppressive. God's not trying to rob you of your personal freedom. He's for our good. And God knows when we live on the canvas that he has created and given us, when we live within the limitations he's created, we become beautiful. Each one of us unique, fearfully, wonderfully made. We become his handiwork, his work of art. Free to be ourselves in relationship with him. And when we're freely ourselves, living in the way that God has given, we experience the true good life, flourishing relationships of intimacy and permanence with one another, ultimately with the lover of our soul. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you take this uh, often hard passage and convicting and definitely countercultural. And work it deep into our hearts, into our lives. That we might believe that even when we're faithless, God, you're faithful. You remain committed to us. And so, God, we all fail. We do. We, we're not faithful as we have said we would be. We're not faithful to you as we've said we would be. We're not faithful to others as we said we would be. But we're so thankful that, that you are and that because you remain and are committed to us, we experience intimacy with a Savior that knows us to the depths of our souls and loves us and remains with us and forgives us and cleanses us and changes us. Thank you that you've been with us, continue to be with us as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.